0: Well, we're in week two of a six-week journey through 1 Timothy, uh, which I've chosen to call Equip You. So you're all enrolled in Equip University. And it's all about how to prepare for the ultimate job interview, if you will, which is another way of saying how to prepare for living the life of a Christian disciple. Now, last week we took a look at what this all entails And I said that our life as Christian disciples is learning to live a life of love, a life of mercy, a life of uh, transformation, and a life of perseverance. Now this week we're going to take a look at a disciple's disposition. It's another good Christian word. And In other words, how we are to relate to other people. And we're going to look at that in two categories. How do we relate to someone in terms of prayer? And how do we relate to people in terms of conduct? How we live our lives. Now, in this chapter, Paul deals with two subjects, one of which is, well, pretty easy in a way. It's all about prayer. And then for some reason, he takes this right-hand turn and goes off the cliff that many people think and talks about the role and status of women in the church. Uh, In the process, we're going to encounter some verses today that kind of challenge our 21st century uh, perceptions. But I'm going to ask you uh, that you let me get all the way through this message before you jump up and down um, or jump to a conclusion about what Paul is saying and what Paul is not saying. So let's start with the so-called easy part. In the first part of this chapter, in verse 2, Paul states the objective each believer ought to have. He says that we may live what? Peaceful and quiet lives. In all godliness and holiness. That's a great thing to do. We are to live in such a way that we don't draw attention to ourselves, but draw attention to the God uh, who uh, we serve. And then Paul goes through the rest of this chapter. He's going to talk about four values. And there are four values here. And these values determine how you and I relate to one another. And more importantly, how we relate to people who are outside the faith. So let's start with value number one. This is to value prayer as a first resort. Now, I've already been in a meeting where I said, well, I think we should pray about this. And one of my elders said, oh, pastor, has it come to that? (laughs) I mean, it's like, no, we're going to hold prayer off for the last resort. If we try everything else, we'll finally pray about it. No, it's the first resort. This is why in verse one, Paul says very clearly, I urge you then that all requests, prayers, Intercession, thanksgiving. He uses four different Greek words to talk about prayer and what it's all about. Be made for everyone. We can almost underline that in your Bible. Everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Now, the interesting thing is, by saying that, Paul was living at a time uh, when this was written that Christians were facing really fierce persecution. Uh, at the hand of Emperor Nero, the Roman Empire. And during Nero's uh, reign, Christians were blamed for the fire which partly destroyed uh, Rome. And this is also the beginning of that era in which Christians were imprisoned. Uh, They were tortured. Uh, They were eaten alive by wild animals in the Roman Colosseum. And yet Paul says what? Pray for our leaders that we can live quiet, peaceful lives. Now, in our current political climate, is this still true? Yeah, it's still true. This principle still applies. We have more, and, uh, uh, more of a voice and more of an influence today than early Christians had in their particular society. But our goal should always be to live peaceful lives uh, characterized by holiness. And so this principle of praying for our leaders still applies. Not only what you're praying for your leaders today. In fact, I don't know if you ever noticed how many political ads kind of go this way. Vote for candidate A because candidate B stinks. Rather than saying, vote for candidate A because I'm candidate A. We could kind of turn that around. It would be a good idea to just kind of pull back on this rhetoric that we have. And hopefully you're not part of that rhetoric where you're in the business of condemning things you don't like instead of trying to bring the gospel into that. To pray that... Everybody who runs for public office, um, would that God would enable them to bring the kind of leadership that he would like into the society we live. But we don't just pray for our leaders. Paul said we should pray for who? Everyone. That's your family members. That's your co-workers. Uh, that would be your fellow students. That would be your friends. That would be your neighbors. And guess what? It would even include your enemies and by the way it would probably include your pastor as well just saying i could use a few from time to time see using prayer as a first resort helps us to remember who really is in charge i don't want to wake up in the morning and say get out of the way because i'm in control no lord this is the day you have made i will rejoice and be glad it. direct my path show me the way whatever bible passage you want to throw in there to begin your day Paul said we should pray for everyone, not just our leaders. The hope of our nation doesn't rest in politicians, but the hope of your family, the hope of your business, your future, uh, doesn't rest on your brilliance. Uh, Our hope is in God and God alone. And prayer, as a first resort, will always help us remember that. So that's value number one, pray. Well, here's value number two. And this is this is really kind of a heart of mine. And this is having valuing passion for the lost. And in verses three and four, he says, "This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth." Now, uh, Paul echoes uh, he's echoing here Second Peter, and in Second Peter chapter three, um, verse nine, it says, "He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish." I mean, God in no way wants people to die without knowing Him. But He wants everybody to come to repentance. So God has a passion for lost people. Uh, it's also, if we also truly care about lost people, it makes a difference in how you and I live our life. Now, Paul here talked about how it affected his own life. If you skip down to verse 7, he said, And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald. Uh, that's a, the Greek word keryx. It means a preacher. I was appointed to be a preacher, and I was an apostle. Apostolos. Apostolos is a Greek word for somebody who's sent on a mission. Since I'm telling you the truth, I'm not lying, and I'm also a true and faithful teacher of. Guess what? He, this, the Jews must their hair must have stood on end if they had any. There are a few of us here that we, we don't know what that means. Uh, but he says. I asked, actually, by the way, I preached the Gentiles. See, not all of us here are called to preach. Now, I'm the predominant head yapper here. Uh, occasionally when I'm not up to it, Jeff fills in for me and uh, sooner or later we'll drag Pastor Mark over here and then they'll drag me over to praise and worship for a while and be on the trade a little bit. Um, but we can all participate in the spreading of the gospel and we all have a role in doing that. Now, it can be as simple as Uh, I go to Restore, you probably don't know much about it, but would you like to come? (laughs) You know, by inviting somebody. Uh, Or maybe, uh, anybody here been on a short-term mission trip? You've been on something like that, that, invite somebody to go along. I've asked people, Pastor, can I go with you? I said, sure, I'd love to take you. And I've seen their lives change, their whole perspective. It can be by supporting a mission like CAM, Church. Christian Action Ministries or whatever other ministry you can get involved with, in. Spending time in prayer where you just maybe have a prayer list and you're just constantly interceding for people that you're pretty sure don't really know who Jesus is. So we kind of need to practice wanting for others what God actually wants for people who don't know him yet. And, and what God wants is he wants everybody to be saved. And so we should want the same thing and we should do what we can about it. And God also wants everybody to live quiet and peaceful lives. So it kind of follows, if you're going to follow Scripture, that we would want that too, that people have a life that is settled down, that it's not always so chaotic. Now, I say that we should also adopt this value of a passion for the lost. And this means that we adopt the value that other people matter. It means that we love others with the love of God. It means that we, we want the same thing for other people that God wants for them. And I get a little bit worked up about this because of a pastor's meeting, I won't tell you where it was, but I got pretty worked up about it when somebody said, you know, I think we need to take care of them ourselves here first. And I blurted out, if lost people matter to God, they well better damn matter to us. And I had the hairs, well, not everybody's hairs stand on it, but about 12 to 15 pastors who looked at me and said, did he say they, we lost people, we, we, they, they damn well better matter to us? Well, I'm sorry for saying it that way, but they better. Lost people are important. So let's move on from that before I get carried away again. Here, here's the third value. Value the priority of unity. In verse 8, I want, now notice that word here, men. I'm coming back to this. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Now, I want you to understand something. When you read the Bible, uh, when it translates, uh, sometimes the Bible translates men as meaning all people. Uh, but sometimes it's referring specifically to men as opposed to women. And in this case, this is where Paul is now talking to the men in that congregation in Ephesus. And in the next paragraph, he's going to talk about the women. We'll get to that. But first, he has something That he wants Timothy to tell to all the men in that church. And he says, I want men, masculine, everywhere to lift up what? Holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Now, Paul is referencing here what I would call a a, a general principle and a specific problem. See, the church was suffering through a division. There there were all kinds of chaos in this church. False teachers that were uh, misleading uh, believers, there were people in leadership who had no business at all even being in leadership, and there was an increasing lack of unity because of these men in this church. So Paul says to the men specifically, I want you, you guys, to pray and do it in a spirit of unity and without arguing with one another. Now the question is, do those words also apply to women? Yes, absolutely. Those words also apply to women. But here Paul is specifically addressing a problem among the men in that church. So the principle here is for prayer to be effective, it must be offered in the spirit of unity and fellowship with others. I'm going to back off here to uh, Matthew for a moment. Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Jesus said, if you're offering your gift at the altar, coming up, uh, some churches used to have a box and you could bring your offering up there. We have a box in the back should you decide to give an offering. But if you, you, if you come with your gift and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be recon- reconciled. That Greek word there is, dioloso. Uh, it means to exchange enmity for friendship uh, to your brother and then come and offer your gift. I remember being uh, when I was a senior pastor at Trinity Lutheran in Bloomington, Illinois, and I preach on this, and I happened to notice this guy kind of, he, he went like this, I have a glance at him, like, oh. and he got up and he walked out. Not that game. He came back when church was over, he says, I had to go home and apologize to my neighbor. <laughs> he says, I couldn't come to communion, I couldn't give my offering. He says, "That just kind of right between the eyes. This whole thing is really interesting. God doesn't want your gift at the altar until you've made every effort to be right in a right relationship with other people. So your gifts, your prayers, uh, your worship always should be in a a manner of unity. And one mark of uh, spiritual maturity, if you will, uh, is that you know how to get along with people. doesn't necessarily mean you're going to actually get along with all people. you ought to try as hard as you can to get along with everybody. You don't have to agree with everything everybody says in order to have fellowship with them. Um, Sadly, I know a lot of people who are totally incapable of getting along with everyone. Uh, Whether they, uh, when they hear a political opinion or a doctrinal interpretation, uh, different from their own, they kind of draw a line in the sand and whip out their sword and want to go into battle with people. What's worse, personal experience, almost 40 years in the pastoral ministry, I've been in some churches where this was done over stupid, silly little things like landscaping or what color the carpet should be in in the women's bathroom or what sort of pattern should we put on the new china that we're going to put into the kitchen uh, or building repairs or parking lot expansions. And apparently the men here at Ephesus had the same tendency. You know, they're just arguing about stuff that wasn't furthering the kingdom, and it was causing them to be in a total disagreement. So Paul feels the the need here to encourage men specifically to start praying and stop disputing. Now I I'm very blessed to be here because uh, we've got a few guys that are here in leadership positions from Ed and Jeff and Anthony and myself. Uh, have we had an I, I'm going to be Have we had an argument over anything? Not but we talk to each other <laughs> not yet, huh <laughs> then we kind of got a goofy email system with about 12 or 13 guys on it, and virtually they all know everything that's going on from, from week to week. And there's not a dispute. We're all in this for the same purpose, to bring restoration to broken people. Now let's move on to the fourth value here. Uh, value a presentation of character. And now this is where it's going to get a little bit touchy. And here Paul addresses the role of women in the church. Now these verses can be really, really difficult. So I'm going to take a little bit more time just with these few verses. The first thing I'm going to say about these verses is this. There are some things we encounter in the New Testament that reflect cultural values. What's going on in that particular culture and not necessarily absolute values. Got that? He's talking about a specific, not overall, and we'll get to the reason why. For example, in chapter 6, thats we're going to do that in a few weeks, in chapter 6 when Paul talks about how slaves should treat their masters, he's not condoning slavery. He's telling people how to live in the context of their culture. Now, our job today, my job, going through this really, uh, is uh, to discern the absolute or the timeless principles inherent in the word here in front of us. And this is certainly in the case of this text. Now, some of what Paul is saying here uh, applies specifically to the situation in Ephesus. And some of it is the acknowledgement of the cultural context where they were living in. So he's going to talk to this church, but the church is sitting where it's sitting in a community of people. And so our job is to discern the absolute or the timeless principle here. Let me tell you that this women be silent in the church, that whole thing, this is a great example of how people have taken, taken one little part of a verse and jerk it out and make an entire doctrine about it. I mean, there's some, so by the way, there's a whole bunch of Lutherans today who will listen to my message who will disagree with me, uh, who still today believe a woman should just sit in the back row and be silent. That's okay. And if I get a little feedback, I'm going to just tell them to read the scriptures, starting with Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation, and see why taking it out of context is all wrong. Well, enough about telling people about that. So let's listen to these words again here. I want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. And obviously this was happening in their church. Women to come and dress to the nines or whatever. But with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. We're going to see where that fits into the context. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Anybody want to argue about it? I'm doing a lot of stuff today to load up Jeff for talkback time. <laughs> now, I've got to tell you, there have been a lot of books, and I looked at a lot of different commentators going through this, that have been written on this passage by scholars who are a lot more learned than I am. Uh, so I don't presume to resolve all the questions related to this passage in the next three or four minutes, but I'm going to make some general observations. Now, the fact that Paul here was encouraging and even commanding women to learn, in other words, to be discipled, was a huge step forward in that particular culture. You need to understand that both in the Greek and the Jewish culture, women were not encouraged to learn. In fact, in the Greek culture... Some of you women should be happy that you didn't grow up in the Greek culture, but in the Greek culture, a woman was expected to keep to herself, stay at home, and never leave the house without her husband. That was around Ephesus. In the Jewish culture, women were allowed to come to synagogue, but rabbis did not consider them worthy to be students. You can sit in the back keep your mouth shut, and if something falls on you, fine, but I'm not going to explain it to you. I mean, that's almost the way it sounds. And so that's why Paul's words are somewhat radical here. And so when we read it today, it may appear that he's trying to diminish the role of women in the church. And I'm going to say, absolutely not. I mean, actually, the the opposite is true. He was encouraging them to expand their presence in this community of faith. And his, his words... Need to be interpreted in light of other scriptures. Now, Jeff and I had a brief conversation, I don't know, 20 minutes yesterday, a couple of days ago, about all these scriptures you could bring in there. He could bring in some way back in Genesis. I'm just going to pick some Old Testament, some New Testament, to show you how this all works. Now, if you just go back to a close book, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is applauding women who adorn themselves with Prayer and prophecy. So we know Paul's not against women to be speaking of a prophetic voice. Uh, in Acts chapter 21, Luke refers to the four daughters of Philip who prophesied. That story is actually recounted in Acts 13, 1 Corinthians 14, Ephesians 2. It said that these four ladies had the gift of prophecy. Now what is prophecy? It is speaking forth the word of God. Now Paul also refers to the teaching the teaching ministry of Priscilla and Aquila and it can be traced back to the Old Testament uh, where Miriam remember Miriam the sister of Moses and Aaron did what she prophesied she spoke the word of God to the children of Israel or how about Deborah, one of the well the only female judge had to take over because the guys were too busy arguing about what color the carpet in the women's bathroom should be exposed and things don't change very often but Deborah had a stamp and she issued prophecy um, so we've got all kinds of people like that you've got another gal whose name was Holda which by the way is my grandmother's name she never prophesied that I knew but this gal in the Old Testament did and in the New Testament I could throw out one more Anna remember Anna When Mary and Joseph brought little Jesus to the temple to be dedicated, who came over and laid a prophecy on him? Anna. Now, beyond all of that, all of you you read the book of Joel, haven't you? Okay, Let me read a little bit from the book of Joel. Joel chapter 2. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, Pentecost, and what's going to happen? Your sons and your... Well, only your sons, right? No. it says, And your sons and your daughters shall do what? Prophecy, prophesy to speak forth the word of God. Your old men, that's me, I guess, will dream dreams. Your young men, Anthony, he'll see visions. Maybe it's Bo here, a little bit younger. Even on the male and female servants... In those days, I will pour out my spirit. And guess what? I mean, these people all began speaking in tongues and prophesying and laying on hands, and they were doing miracles. I mean, so why was it okay? Here's the question: Why was it okay in some situations for some women, certain women, to preach and prophesy, but not in others, like in Ephesus? Well, it's because in some situations call for a different direction. That's about as simple as I can put it. The church in Ephesus, Ephesus was so messed up. It was so full of trouble because of these false teaching men who should have been thrown out. And it appears that these men were actually specifically targeting women who were new to the discipleship experience. It would be like, okay, welcome to restore. Uh, women, would you mind sitting in the back? And, and when uh, Dr. Cole preaches, put your fingers in your ears, would you please? You don't need to know this stuff, or send them to another room, I guess. So Paul said women needed to be taught. He said they need to be discipled, not to be teachers, not to have authority until all that's done. He said they were to kind of remain silent, to kind of what? Sit and soak, learn, do this. Now the word doesn't re- that, that word uh, silent doesn't refer to soundlessness. It means just like in quiet composure. They're there. They're taking it in. They're learning. So here's the bottom line. In every church with which I have ever worked, regardless of what people in that congregation may or may not have believed to be true, without the involvement of women in that church, that church would have literally fallen apart. There wouldn't be Sunday schools without women. Now, granted, a lot of people, they sent them down to the basement, you know, to do that. Not a good deal. Um, but educational departments would have fallen away. And in some cases, the entire church would stop functioning if it were not for the women in that building. Now, every church I have ever been a part of as a pastor has had strong women in leadership. I'm going to tell you about a few. In my very first church at Emmanuel Lutheran in Belvedere, Illinois... One of the first people I hired was Jennifer Baker to be in charge of women's ministries. And really, she became the director of family life ministries. Now, she's the one who runs Good Dads out of Springfield today, where she's still teaching people. But she had been adequately discipled before she began doing all of those kinds of things. It was in my second church, at Trinity Lutheran. I actually hired somebody by the name of Nancy didn't really hire her. She became the volunteer at that particular time, but later we began to pay her, but she ran a lot of family life ministries and, and helped the women. When we got the Lord of Life, she was still there, and we took her on the staff where she headed up women's ministries, although she had started in finance. and, and In addition, uh, there were other women that were very important in that ministry, but all of them had been discipled somewhere along the line. And when I got to uh, First Lutheran Church in Texarkana, I had two DCEs work for me, both of them female, uh, Laura uh, Pulliam and, and Katie Cleveland, two, two of the finest young ladies who are still doing it today. One is a pastor's wife today, and she's running a church together with her husband, Lutheran Church, believe it or not. And the other one's still a DCE out in Denver, Colorado. So there's all kinds of people that, uh, that I've known over the years who have been welcomed in a church to be able to teach. But the problem back then was these ladies hadn't been discipled. And Paul is saying, it'd be good for you to sit there for a while, listen and learn. And when the time comes, you're going to step forward and you're going, to, you're going to do this. So Paul goes on in verses 9 and 10. He says, I also want the women to dress modestly. Now, this is another whole can of worms here. With decency and propriety, ordaining themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now I don't know much about this. I, evidently, these women were coming up, you know, dressed like they're going to go out to a nightclub or something. But you know, I got to thinking about that, that. What's your calling card? What's your calling card? If, if somebody say, "Well, our pastor, you know, he wears jeans, he's got cowboy boots. I mean, that's his this calling card." Um, but what is your calling card? What is your defining attribute? Is it the way you dress, uh, or is it your hair, or lack of hair, or your uh, external appearance, or is it your behavior, your attitude, or the way you think, or talk, or say things? Now, Paul, I think here is saying that one's defining attribute should be based on actions and not appearance. Don't come out all flash and no substance. You're better off coming dressed like me and hopefully have some substance with all of this. Uh, and, and though Paul speaks here to the women of the church, I think the Apostle Paul is talking to everybody. Uh, it's not about how you look or what kind of car or what kind of truck you drive or the symbol of beauty or success that you try to project. The signature of Christian is found in what he or she does. Now, God is calling us. Uh, this is the way I feel it going through this chapter. God's calling all of us here to focus on content, to focus on content rather than on form. We don't want to go through the motions with no emotions. And sadly, there are a lot of churches that do that. You know, the pastor sends says, Beloved of the Lord, let us draw near with a clean heart. Amen. Uh, let us now confess our sins to God. Ah, blah, 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 blah. And it's just kind of parroting kind of stuff. And there's, there's a form, but there's no emotion in it. There's no heart in it. There's no desire to truly draw closer to God. And I, I don't want to be too critical of that because there is a place for those things. I don't want to criticize my brothers uh, too much. Uh, but you know, the disposition of the leader, that's what the leader is supposed to do, is that teach people to live not only quiet lives, but to be respectful of everybody else. Now, how do we do that? Well, let's back the wagon up again, start with chapter 2 and verse 1. We are to lift people up in prayer. Now, we do that regularly here at Restore. Uh, we don't have, generally, don't have to use a canned prayer. Uh, sometimes I do the praying sometimes Jeff does the praying sometimes other people have done the praying we have just asked for prayer requests and we just pray for people a good thing to do Uh, we want other people to be able to do the same thing now part of disciple you would be sometime I might say uh, who would like to collect all the prayers today and you might go "Uh, I'll go for it (laughs) I've sat here long enough I think I might be able to do it you've been involved in disciple university and you've been discipled into that position uh, to grow in knowledge that you would live a quiet and holy life. See, we do our best to get along with people uh, knowing that the strength of our prayers is determined by the strength of our unity. And I, I believe that to be true here. Uh, when this used to be, what, the grind, it was the same thing. Gather, grow, grind, and go. And I think the, the, the strength of the prayers there is what moved that forward. The strength of the prayers as we pray for one another to pray for the world uh, that, that strengthens our unity. So, in the end, what does this all say? Well, we strive to be persons of character, godly people, uh, focusing on action rather than on appearance, uh, focusing on content rather than just mere form, because this is the way that God has called us to relate to this world and to share Jesus. And I pray that God blesses us in all that we do and all that we say. Amen.